Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism. And now your host, Patrick Donahoe. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast. I have the pleasure and the honor to have David Stockman on with me today. David, welcome. Happy to be with you. For those of you who don't know David Stockman, he is an American politician and former businessman who served as a Republican U.S. representative from the state of Michigan from 1977 to 1981, and also served as the director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Reagan. David is the ultimate Washington insider turned iconoclast. He began his career in Washington as a young man and quickly rose through the ranks of the Republican Party to become director of the office that I just mentioned under President Reagan. And after leaving the White House, he had a career on Wall Street. And uh, you've had quite the experience, David. You also authored an incredible work, I would say a treatise of what your principles truly are, which is uh, The Great Deformation, The Corruption of Capitalism in America. And you have a most, and you have a recent book that you just released uh, called Peak Trump, The Undrainable Swamp and the Fantasy of Make America Great Again, MAGA. (laughs) Well, David, thank you for your work over the years. I've followed for your long time. And I mentioned to you before we started recording that the empath in me cringes sometimes when I see you on TV trying to advocate principles of liberty, principles of free market and uh, certain monetary policy principles, fiscal policy principles, and it just doesn't seem to get through. But what it does, David, honestly, it says a lot about who you are, that you continue to advocate for principles you believe in, despite the resistance you get, it seems, most often. Uh, But maybe give the listeners an idea of like, what are the milestones of your life that brought you to the point where you understood what you do about markets, the economy, fiscal policy, monetary policy? Well, yeah, that's uh, interesting. You summarize my career at length, but I think you could boil it down to say half the time I was a politician and half the time I was an investment banker on Wall Street, so I never really had an honest job in my whole life. <laughs> Some people look at it that way. But actually, I learned something big during those that two-phase career, and that is about debt. Washington loves debt because obviously yeah, you can kick the can down the road and put the cost on future generations or pretend that the interest carry is not all that bad and you can get away with it. And there are no offsetting institutions and principles that mitigate against that. You're going to end up with a $22 trillion national debt that we hit just a couple of days ago. And actually, as I show in my new book, Peak Trump, we're heading for $40 trillion before the end of this coming decade. And that will be just a devastating burden on the economy because as near as I can project it, it would amount to about 140% of GDP. Now, we only know of two economies that have more government debt than that are really three, Japan, Greece, and Italy. (laughs) You can pick your, choose which of those poisons you would like, but the point is it doesn't bode well for where we're heading, especially because we have this oddity in our demographic here in America, and that is the baby boom. It was a giant aberration in terms of the number of babies that were born from 1946 when I was born to 1962. It was 80 million people. So you do a little math and you realize that all of them will be retiring in the 2020s, early 2030s. They'll be hitting the Social Security trust funds and Medicare and a lot of the other so-called welfare state supports massively just in terms of numbers. And then, of course, uh, what politicians don't 
let you know today, or maybe don't even know and don't acknowledge, that it's kind of a built-in Ponzi scheme, Social Security and the rest of what I call the welfare state, because we build in higher and higher real benefits over time relative to what people earn during their working career and put into the trust fund. So it's nothing like insurance. It's nothing like actuarial balance. It's a Ponzi. So if you have this kind of debt already sort of baked into the cake, you have the demographics baked into the cake, and then you have this escalation of real cost per beneficiary, you're in big trouble. And that's what the politicians have ignored. Now, Wall Street used to know a lot better. And in back in the day, in the 60s, the 50s, and the 70s, when we had a decent level of prosperity, Wall Street really understood a little bit about what sound money was and what fiscal rectitude was. And if you got heading off the deep end, like happened in 1967, 68, remember uh, Johnson, uh, guns and butter, he was going to build a great society at home and the great society on the Mekong and the river as well. It was a total disaster. But finally, Wall Street rose up and said, you can't do this. They forced Johnson uh, to raise taxes to balance the budget, which was out of control. And William McChesney Martin, who was chairman of the Fed at the time, believed, oh, you can't print your way to prosperity. So he threw on the brakes. We had a recession and people learned their lesson. Well, I say all this because after 1971, when Nixon took us off uh, the gold standard, so-called, which was really nothing to do with the magic of gold, it had to do with discipline on the central bank and the uh, financial system. Accountability, yeah. Accountability, discipline. You couldn't just create credit and money at will and in any quantity you like, as has happened in the last 20 or 30 years. Well, that went away, and it took a little while for people to realize that we were on a total fiat system and nothing could stop the central bank if it wanted to print like crazy. And then Wall Street learned to love money printing because in the short run, it helped to inflate uh, financial assets because it made interest rates lower. It made cap rates and uh, PE multiples higher. And everybody lived happily ever after, it seemed, except Main Street. And here's the point where my book, Where the Rubber Meets the Road. And that is that really since Greenspan took over the Fed in 1987, we have been off the deep end in something that I call bubble finance or Keynesian central banking in which we've had tremendous booming prosperity on Wall Street and increasing stagnation and flatlining failure on Main Street. Let me give one statistic on that, and then we can move on, because I think it summarized what I learned during my years in Washington and then second half of my career in Washington. And that is, if you go back to the days right before the great crisis that shook the rafters, in September 2008, everybody thought the world was coming to an end. If you look at where Main Street was as measured by industrial production, and that's everything, you know, that's manufacturing, that's energy, uh, coal mining, oil, shale, all the utilities, gas, electric, water, etc. So it's a fundamental measure of output on me and the Main Street economy. The reason I dwell on it is that if you go to the level, that existed in November 207, and compare it to where it is today, we've gained only 3% in the last 11 years. That's the same thing as flat. 
I mean, if you divide that out by 11 years, you might as well call it flat. Now, look at where the NASDAQ 100 was the same date, November 2007. And the NASDAQ 100 really is the leading edge of the casino, as I call it, or the stock market, as uh, Wall Street would like to call it. And you take the inflation out of it. So we're talking apples to apples here because industrial production is physical. It has no inflation in it. So on an inflation-adjusted basis, the NASDAQ 100 at last fall's peak was up 200%. And Main Street production output was up 3%. Now, that doesn't make any sense because ultimately the price of equities and other financial assets uh, reflect the you know, output and income capacity and growth of Main Street. So what we have is a totally bifurcated economy unbelievable, unheard of prosperity down on Wall Street. And that's a great bubble that's going to collapse. Trump made a mistake of uh, embracing it. And stagnation and increasing resistance to growth on Wall Street or on Main Street because we have so much debt. And we can get into that. But the amount of debt, not just on the government sector that I talked about, but households, households and business and financial institutions, Add up in total to $70 trillion today, which is three and a half times national income. And I don't think that's stable or sustainable, but it does mean that you're lugging so much debt that growth becomes harder and harder. And that's also why if we look on a 10 year rolling basis, our real GDP growth rate today is 1.5% compared to three to 4% back in the heyday of before 1971. Nixon took us down the path we're on today. So that's uh, kind of some big picture views that I've kind of put together and assessed over like 45 years in Washington and then on Wall Street. First thought that comes to mind is I think it did work, relatively speaking, for bankers, right? The whole last 10 years and what's occurred, 11 years. But at the same time, you look at the fundamental side of things. I don't think most people understand the fundamentals. And so if you were really to, to look at what occurred 2008, but I think it, you're right. It started really with Greenspan and what he started to do, especially with the dot-com bust. It comes down to the artificial influence of markets because markets in and of themselves are supposed to be a clearinghouse, right? And so if you look at profit and you look at capital and you look at valuations, you obviously buy companies that are profitable, that have good cash flow, that have good fundamentals, right? And you don't buy those that, uh, that have poor operations and poor balance sheets, poor financial statements. But if you look at, you know, what really has been done is the injection of capital into society, right, has artificially increased the demand and the flow of capital into businesses. And that's why, you know, a lot of the bond buying from corporations, not bond buying, but bond issuing by corporations just to buy back their stock is just one example of that manipulation. It's not really understood from the average American's perspective because they don't have this background in economics, unfortunately. And a lot of the stuff that's happened has been not necessarily behind the scenes, But what's occurred, there's a narrative around it that you explained that this is a good thing, that we're here to save the economy and we're here to bail out banks and we're here to do this and this and this for your benefit. But ultimately, it was just to the benefit of them, if you think about it. So this is where I want to get into the idea of kind of capitalism and economics. So I recently interviewed a guy who wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And the book, it's about the higher education system and how free speech has, you know, it's gone from one side of the spectrum where like the college scene was like the epitome of free speech. Now it's like the complete opposite. 
And uh, the coddling of the American mind really is the trying to protect those from emotional harm than anything else. What it does, it robs people of the experience of figuring things out on their own. And I think that's kind of the point of capitalism and economics, right? Fundamentally, right, is to have a system in where things are innovated, things, solutions are come up with, people are able to express themselves through capital and through resources. But if they fail, right, they're out of business or they learn. And that's ultimately been completely removed from the equation, it, it seems, in most cases, and has created what we have today. Yeah, you know, I agree with that in a lot of ways. And in terms of things I look at, I don't pay that much attention to the way that they're coddling all the snowflakes on college campuses today. I fully understand that. But at another level, at the level of the macroeconomy and Washington policy and Wall Street, it's the same thing. Wall Street wants to be coddled. We saw uh, Christmas Eve just most recently, they had a hissy fit because uh, the Fed finally said, after eight years of negative real interest rates, that is the money market rate, the Fed fund rate was less than inflation for eight years running, which is crazy as hell, right? But they finally said, we're going to normalize interest rates. And this big bloated balance sheet we have that totally inflated the stock and bond market, we're going to be continue on automatic pilot. That's what Paul said. They have the hissy fit. And the next thing you know, Paul does a U-turn. He totally capitulates all the Fed heads. They're out there singing about, well, we can be patient, we can defer delay. And I say, what are they thinking about deferring delay? They've been deferring for 10 years. We've had unreal central bank policy, both at its balance sheet level and its manipulation of interest rates and the yield curve. And yet we get just a modest correction, a wake-up call in a couple weeks before Christmas Eve, and then the big sell-off on Christmas Eve, and all of a sudden, the, all the crybabies on Wall Street are asking for their safe room, <laughs> like the college kids, yep. snowflakes in college. 100%. So but I'll tell you what, if you go back to 1970 or even the mid-80s when I left Washington, the Reagan administration, when I was budget director, and I joined Solomon Brothers, which was a pretty rough and tumble place then, and it was run by John Goodfriend, who was called the King of Debt, and it was a huge trading house in uh, all debt securities. You didn't see this kind of snowflake attitude on Wall Street. People expected there were going to be cycles and that they were at risk if they were going to chase uh, the latest and greatest stock bubble or phenomena, that they were at risk. And there was no presumption really then that if there's a big meltdown, Wall Street would be bailed out or that we would get to a situation like 208. When clearly Morgan Stanley was insolvent, it should have been forced into Chapter 11. Merrill Lynch was insolvent. It uh, put into a shotgun marriage, forcibly, with Bank America by the Fed, but it left to its own devices. Bank America didn't want to buy Merrill Lynch. They were forced to buy it, and Merrill Lynch should have gone bankrupt. And frankly, Goldman Sachs would have gone bankrupt as well. All of them were way over their skis with all kinds of sticky risky, long-term assets that they were funding with overnight money. Panic came in, the overnight money dried up. They faced a liquidity crisis they couldn't get out of, and the market should have been allowed to work. Now, what I've said in my previous book, which I think still is a lesson that's been lost because we've had this phony stock recovery and therefore the recency bias obscures everything that we allegedly learned back then 10 years ago, 
But what I showed is there was no danger of a meltdown in the banking system on Main Street. There were no lines at the banks other than a few high flyers that were in the uh, subprime mortgage business that should have gone out of business anyway. So the key point is the bailouts were of the big Wall Street gambling houses. It wasn't of the banking system, and we should have allowed the crisis to burn out in the canyons of Wall Street. All those uh, firms would have gone under. They would have been reorganized. The same people then would be running a reorganized Wall Street today, but shorn of all their phony wealth had been built up and now possessed of some realistic appreciation about the danger of too much debt and risk and too much uh, gambling down in the canyons of Wall Street. But none of that happened. We did uh, the snowflake thing uh, for Wall Street, bailed out all these banks, same way with the car companies and a lot else in the U.S. economy. So as they say, it was a wasted crisis. We did nothing but double and triple down on what Greenspan had already been doing, which was bad enough. And now the central banks, led by the Fed, have painted themselves into a corner. Let me just give one little illustration of how aberrant all this is. Because if you listen to uh, what I call bubble vision, and let's just say CNBC or Fox Business, they're both the same. You would think that everything is normal, stable, the way a reality is and will forevermore be, when in fact we're in a giant, crazy experiment that anybody who looks at it objectively with historic notions of sound finance and financial discipline would say, what are they doing? Here's the number. On the eve of the Lehman bankruptcy, September 15, uh, 20, 2008, balance sheet of the Fed was $930 billion, and it had taken 94 years from when the Fed opened its doors in 1914 to build that balance sheet up. It was sort of like the Ohio State offense, three-yard board, a cloud of dust, and business cycles, and so forth. But it had taken 94 years to build that up. And even then, it wasn't perfect, and you were creating credit out of central bank credit out of thin air. My point, though, is in the next 94 days after Lehman went under, Bernanke and his merry money printers at the Fed created 145% more balance sheet in 94 days than all their predecessors had done in the previous 94 years. They took the balance sheet from $930 billion to $2.2 trillion in 94 days. And then after they had supposedly rescued the economy, when the only thing they did was basically uh, suspend the laws of supply and demand and financial discipline, after they'd done that, they just kept on going. And they invented Q2 and Q3 and the twist and all kinds of other central banker baloney. And they eventually took the balance sheet to $4.5 trillion. So that means that in roughly nine years, 10 years, they create $3.5 trillion of central bank credit out of thin air, pumped it into Wall Street. That caused the price of bonds to soar because all this artificial demand from the Fed. They paid for it with something for nothing, you know, digital credits made out of thin air. 
And of course, when the bond market soared and uh, long-term interest rates went lower and lower, the 10-year one point down to 1.35% here and even lower abroad, that's basically the cap rate for all financial assets, the capitalization rate. So when the long-term interest rate gets pushed down to the floorboard, the PE rate or price earnings ratio is the inverse. It soars uh, for equities. And so the stock market takes off and then you get all kinds of financial derivatives, uh, the options and futures and the whole rest of the complex going for a huge ride. So what they did is they didn't fix anything. They violated even more laws than anybody had done before in economic and financial laws. And they created the third great bubble of this decade, uh, century, I mean, that we're in right now. And so I want to relate this then, because I don't think it's sustainable. I think we're going to have an even bigger, more thundering crash for some reasons that we can get into. But uh, the reason I call my book Peak Trump is that uh, Trump, for all of his defects and lack of preparation and know-how to do the job that he's running for, at least he called it a one big, fat, ugly bubble during the campaign. And when he was elected, the day he was elected, this S&P 500 was 2140. Okay, now fast forward two years peak September 20th last fall is 29.40. It's up 800 points. But the problem is that big, fat, ugly bubble now became the triumph of Trumpian economics. Okay. So it was a huge mistake to embrace that bubble and the economy that went with it because they're both going to go down to the count. They're going to splatter all over the White House and the Donald and all the rest of it. And we're going to be in for a big time uh, crisis on years ahead. As you've been talking, what keeps circling through my mind is it's kind of like a violation of principles of humanity, like behavior. Like It's kind of like we're here having an experience of life and we learn by going through difficult things and learning how to make decisions and being responsible and being self-reliant. And you know that cycle happens probably throughout our entire life. And going to the example I was using with the interview from a few weeks ago, it's evident that in the higher education model, the coddling of a mind right? It kind of like ruins and destroys the mind because it's not allowed to have the experiences that form their perspective, their intuition, their opinions, figuring things out using a rational brain. And it's the same thing monetarily where you had these companies and you also had influences that failed, but yet you didn't allow them to fail. It magnified the problem. It's not even making the problem worse. It's like it's worse times two because now they didn't learn, and they're going to just keep using the exact same behavior they used before, right? And now it's a much bigger problem, and it affects the whole world. It's not the U.S. This has gone through the entire world. And really what's happened is it's on the backs of the American people, the citizens, Main Street, as they're called. But the unfortunate thing is that I don't even think anybody really in the political sphere, the majority of people don't know what economic policy is and monetary policy. They're just following what the status quo has been for the last 30, 40 years. And that's the unfortunate thing is that we're past the point of no return as far as having to learn a lesson the hard way, right? That's just part of making mistakes is that it's a little difficult in the transition. It's unavoidable. And I agree with you. It's a matter of time, but that's just one of those things where it just keeps sputtering along. And people are like, well, if I believed you or if I stuck to fundamentals and principles 10 years ago, then I wouldn't have made any money the last like eight, nine years. And it's just like (laughs) what the view is right now. And One of those things where in hindsight, the lesson is always learned. It's never learned in foresight. 
I agree with all of that. And this gets to the issue of the heart of capitalism and the prosperity that it creates is the money and capital markets. That's where, you know, the financial flows crisscross. That's where capital is raised. That's where savings are put to work. So you need very honest, efficient, and disciplined money and capital markets. And if you have those, it'll spread out through the rest of uh, the GDP and the uh, Main Street economy. And so you have something like the great free market economist Joseph Schumpeter had this concept of creative disruption. That's how capitalism progresses. And so buggy whips go by the wayside and uh, you get a horn on your uh, automobile, your Ford uh, Model T or whatever it is. Uh, Now, that is important, but creative disruption does not work efficiently and productively if the financial markets are totally falsified by central bank manipulation and intervention. Because when they're falsified and you get stock prices that are way too high, people are rewarded for doing the wrong thing or not warned when they should be doing something else. Now, I use this as a way of working up to Amazon. Amazon is turning the retail world upside down. It's an amazing machine. It's in some ways created disruption like it's never been before. But the stock market is so out of control because of the central bank manipulation that Amazon is drastically overvalued, okay? It doesn't produce any profits to speak of. The profits they do make are nothing to do with that big e-commerce business. The profits they make come off its uh, cloud business, and that's a tiny piece of it. But my point is, so the people running Amazon from Jeff Bezos on down are being told, don't worry about pricing for profits, simply price for expansion, price for sales growth, price in order to destroy the next uh, industry that you decide to penetrate. So what's happening is because Amazon is massively overvalued, I mean, it trades off and on at 150 or 200 times income, crazy, trades in in multiples of cash flow that never made any sense in history. As a result of that, we're not getting just creative destruction, which is a good thing. We're getting just pure destruction. In other words, all these empty malls, all these failing retail chains, all these people whose livelihood was invested in the bricks and mortar retail sector are being prematurely thrown overboard or impaired and injured because Amazon is going too fast because Amazon is way overvalued. And I'll tell you this, Bezos may be worth uh, at the peak, he was worth about 150 billion or something. But if the company were valued rationally in a pre-fed kind of template or pre-fed type of regime, he might have been worth five billion. Okay, I, I won't go through all the math of it, but I've written this up several times. It's in my book and my blogs. But the point is, at five billion, he would be have one kind of business model and growth strategy, uh, modus operandi for uh, Amazon. At 150 billion, he's going to do something totally different. And all the people who work for it who have some piece of the uh, action with stock options and so forth. Now, that is, you take that example and you multiply it over and over by hundreds and thousands of times, and we're getting all kinds of bad signals throughout our economy. People are making bad decisions. And at the end of the day, they're going to need less growth, less prosperity, lower living standards, 
and more trouble down the road. And the worst case is the signal to Washington, which you were mentioning a moment ago. Because if you tell the politicians, and I was one of more than 15 years, so I understand the mindset. If you tell them that you can borrow almost unlimited money at less than 2% interest, they're going to borrow like there's no tomorrow. And they're going to say, yeah, deficit spending is a bad thing. But right now, we got to get the economy humming and we'll get to the deficit in the by and by. Well, we've been kicking the can now for 25 years. And it's because they have been totally missignaled, misled by ultra-cheap debt. Now, the reason I know that's true is that I was there when I became budget director January 1981. The 10-year bond rate, which people who have come in the world since then can't imagine, was 16%. Okay, And the 30-day Treasury bill was 20%. And mortgages were up in the high teens. Bank rates uh, were up uh, pushing 20%. And in that environment, my point is it scared the deficits and debt, scared the hell out of politicians because at least they could do the math. You borrow a trillion dollars and you got a 15% bond yield, that's $150 billion a year of interest you're going to have to pay that's going to squeeze out your favorite pork barrel project or education or some kind of do-gooder thing, what all the politicians glom onto, or some favorite war, because half of them are warmongers. So, you know, they're either domestic do-gooders or foreign warmongers, but they want money and they don't want to have to spend it on interest. So they get reasonably disciplined or reasonably prudent fiscally if there are real interest rates. Because that goes to our point in the beginning, yeah. which was accountability. Right. Accountability, exactly it. We can call it price discovery. We can call it honest pricing. But the systematic effect of Keynesian central banking, and I just use the word because it means they're trying to run the economy on the theory that capitalism is a total failure on its own and will constantly stumble and fall or into recessions, depressions, and all kinds of other things, which is total baloney. Yeah. But that's the view. And so, therefore, they're in the middle of what I would call the central nervous system of capitalism is Wall Street, it's the financial markets, and they should get out of there. They should let interest rates find their own level, let supply and demand clear the market and will out. If uh, the stock market gets all bubblicious, enthusiastic, let there be a couple of crashes and let a few people be carried out on their shield. And the thing will work well because, by the way, we had the greatest prosperity known to man. From 1870 to 1914, real GDP grew at 4% per year on average for 44 years, nothing like it before or since. And we had no central bank. And we had nobody saying what the interest rate should be. And we had nobody targeting GDP or the inflation rate or anything else. We had just capitalism. It worked pretty darn well. It all comes back to that principle of accountability, right? And you look at when you do have signals or you have influences, it's an artificial signal, it's an artificial influence, and that always is going to create unintended consequences. And they're everywhere. You mentioned some empty malls and so forth. And I'm not going to argue that Bezos or some of these tech guys have created value because they have, but at the same time, what value has been destroyed somewhere else? And that's where I look at, I'll just use my local economy here where I've had a hell of a time trying to hire people over the last two years because there's hundreds of tech companies here now and they are not profitable, right? 
they price everything with tremendous amounts of VC funding or private equity funding. And I can't afford the developers. I can't afford the, the project managers. It's insane how much wages have been pushed up, right? So that's one of those things where it's like, it seems good on some measurements, right? Because of what artificial demand is doing. At the same time, you're not looking at the unintended consequences. And I don't think a lot of those consequences have really manifested. Yeah, on paper they have, right? Whether it's default of automobile loans, whether it's the student loan bubble, I think they're yet to actually manifest. Uh, but those are going to be some of those signals that, hey, yeah, maybe it was good over here, but look at all the crap and chaos it caused over here. So that's where I would say this difficult time is ahead of us. I think we all have in our prayers that hopefully at this point, they actually understand the fundamentals of it and actually make the right decisions. Because like you said, that you can't just keep deferring the fundamental issue. And the fundamental issue is you use debt to manipulate behavior, manipulate prices and manipulate growth. And it wasn't true growth. And that's what hopefully people will get, but time will tell. Yeah, you're getting right to the heart of what I call the trouble with bubble finance. And that is, there's a lot of hidden lot in the financial and operating economy as the bubble gets larger and larger. But people don't see it either because it's a new phenomena or because there's a suspension of disbelief, okay? Now, what I'm talking about here is that there's been such a huge boom in the total value of the equity market and the bond market together that it's generated enormous amounts of investable uh, venture capital, okay? So now venture capital is flowing in tens of trillions or tens of billions of investable funds. And so they're looking for every cockamamie startup they can find. And they're all being funded. But these are what I call burn babies. They are not paying the rent and the lights and the payroll out of revenue. They're paying it out of venture capital. And we've seen it before, but this time it's going to be the worst ever. And when the market really goes into a big correction and the venture capital world dries up and freezes up and there are no third and fourth and fifth rounds or new fundings, then all of a sudden all of these burn babies out there are going to suddenly run out of cash, turn off the lights, nail the door shut, and get out of Dodge. And it's going to cause a huge negative sucking sound of the south, so to speak, Places like Brooklyn or Silicon Valley or Austin, Texas or a lot of others. For instance, take my favorite whipping boy, WeWork, okay? That is, if there was ever a kind of poster boy for the insanity of the current bubble, it's WeWork. They've raised billions of dollars in the junk bond market and elsewhere to buy fixed office building assets that have long, long life, 25, 40 years, or to lease them on long-term leases, and then to improve them with all kinds of fancy digs to attract people to come in, and they got all kinds of flavored coffee and all the rest of it there. But on the other side, their uh, tenants are on one-week, 30-day, three-month leases. That is the big, most mismatched book you know, in human history, and it would never see the light of day if you had financial discipline. But when the money is just flowing in unlimited ways, the risk is totally ignored. You create a ridiculous oddity, aberration 
like WeWork. I mean, that thing's going to blow up. There's no doubt. And here's what I would say, because I've been in a WeWork before and WeWorks are like, they're cool. I mean, they have cool office space. It's open. You have all the, it's a cool concept. And and I'm not saying that they're not creating value, but at what price and what's the consequence of how they've done it? And that's the that's the point I think you're trying to make is that, okay, yeah, there's good sides of it, but nobody ever focuses on the bad and what the consequences are, right? And I think it's like super convenient to order stuff from Amazon instead of having to go to the store. But at the same time, it's like, okay, what is that done? The way in which they've been able to fund that and do that the yeah. consequence of being able to do it in the way they've done it hasn't necessarily been manifested yet. And I think that's going to be worse than actually having the benefit of what they offer as a product. Yeah. The point is, I'm not picking on WeWork is a bad idea. It's a great idea, but you can't mismatch your book. You can't be running 20 year leases on one exactly. side and 20 exactly. day tenancies on the other side. So if you want to do it that way, then you've got to charge your tenants an arm and a leg. So you build up reserves. So that when the next downturn comes, half the people occupying desks and we work are going to be gone. They're going to ionize because they're burn babies. They have no revenue. They have no profit. And they probably have no reason for being other than they could raise capital because at the moment anything goes. So now you get an empty office, half empty office building on 20 year leases and all your uh, tenants are disappearing or bankrupting. You got a mess. Well, David, we could go on forever because there's a lot of things that I wanted to talk about, but I know that you're two hours ahead of me and you probably have dinner and, and be with your be with your family. So I have one final kind of question for you. So if you had 60 minutes with inside of a room of your choosing with, you know, Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, uh, Janet Yellen and Powell, what would be some of those first questions or statements, questions you would ask them or statements you would make to them? <laughs> Uh, it probably, the meeting wouldn't last very long because I would say, one, you're dead wrong, and two, you're not needed, okay? The idea of active central banking and setting every uh, price on the yield curve from overnight 30 years, which directly or indirectly they attempt to influence, that this idea of a central bank put or Fed put, all of this is counterproductive, it's negative, it's not needed, and that we should go back to the banker's bank that was created in 1914. You know that when the Fed was opened its doors, it was illegal for the Fed to buy any government debt, not build bonds, anything. That it did not have any mandate for full employment or 2% inflation or all the other things. It was simply meant to be a backup uh, source of liquidity, 12 different regional banks, and the liquidity was to be provided to commercial banks only if they presented sound collateral based on receivables or finished inventory that could be converted to cash. So what you needed then was central bankers with a good pair of green eye shades that could go through balance sheets and financial statements and determine whether or not the collateral that was being brought to the window uh, was sound and was uh, loanable. Okay, We didn't need Alan Greenspan and we didn't need Ben Bernanke and his PhD and all of these ridiculous models that they used. You didn't need any of that. You needed good uh, accountants and lending officers, okay? So I would say, we don't need you, uh, but thanks thanks for your service. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you use it as a vent session. That's what I assumed. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think, you know, they have this like kind of iconic status, it seems. And I look at just kind of the core and root of the problem. The unfortunate thing is, 
the awareness that people have regarding monetary policy and the role of a, a central bank and the awareness is non-existent. And it's unfortunately, I would say, going to take some pretty hard times for people to wake up. And that's just behavior in general, right? When you start to experience pain, you're like, oh, I don't like that. I should probably change what I'm doing to get the pain. That's when change happens. And I think as a society, it's unfortunate that the narrative that we've been fed for the last probably 20, 30 years is that all of this is good for us. And that's the right. saddest part is that the ignorance of, uh, of individuals has been preyed on. Ultimately, they're the ones that are going to, we're the ones that are going to have to pay a big share of the price. But I don't know. Time will tell. Okay. And I, let me just add to what you said. It's bad and it's also good. They put their credibility on the line. They said they fixed everything. We know what we're doing. You need a, what I call a monetary policy hero of 10 to 12 geniuses on the Federal Open Market Committee and we'll make everything better. And when this bubble collapses, they're out of dry powder. They will not be able to rescue the market. People are going to lose trillions of dollars. They're going to be mad and angry. And some people are going to be totally financially ruined. And there is going to be a day of reckoning. They're going to be so discredited that maybe then the way will be open for critics like myself or others, uh, Rand Paul, you know, he's, uh, he understands this, to tell the American public, we don't need this massive central bank intervention. It's got to be house clean, the Eccles building, and totally curtailed back to its original mission. I think there's a chance that that could happen, but it'll be uh, pretty painful getting from here to there. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fascinating dialogue. I really appreciate you teaching me and teaching the audience. What's the best way we can support you? What's the best way to follow you, see what you're up to? If you're interested in this, I have a daily blog. It's called David Stockman's Country Corner. You can Google it, sign up. It's a modest subscription-based service, or you can read my books. <laughs> my newest one, uh, Pete Trump, uh, The Undrainable Swamp and uh, Fantasy of MAGA. I think it's really important to understand what's going on right now because people have been totally misled by all the boasting and bragging coming from the White House about the Trumpian economy. It's a house of cards, a house of bet, and the whole thing got not many more months to go. Okay, well, we'll get the word out. We'll get everything posted on our social media channels and blog. But again, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your service. Okay, great. Thank <laughs> you. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, David. Okay, very good. Okay. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, a financial strategy to reignite the American dream, is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio, and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. 
head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Oh,